So I wonder if I asked you this question, and I'm going to have to get you to participate a little bit with me this morning. Um, who thinks prayer is important? That's good, just checking. It's an easy one to start with. Um, over 75% of Americans regularly pray. Over 55% of Americans pray every single day. Presumably that's Christians, it's those of other religions, maybe it's even the odd agnostic, or maybe even the odd atheist. People pray. Prayer in the life of vintage Pasadena is the very lifeblood of our community. It's how we connect and relate to our Heavenly Father. It's how we access his power. It's how we access his presence, how we access his will for our lives. No move of God locally or globally over the last 2,000 years has ever come from anywhere else than groups of people getting on their knees, humbling themselves, and asking God to move in his power. Prayer matters. But then let me ask you another question. Who finds prayer easy? Literally nobody. I'm sure some of us, might. one person. It's good. That's why we made Lisa Vitko head of community groups, because she can pray. Prayer can feel really difficult sometimes. Maybe it's because God is not physically in front of us all week long, reminding us that he's there. Maybe it's because when life is going really well, it's super easy to forget that God's even out there and that he's part of our lives. Maybe it's because when we're anxious and we're stressed, the idea of stopping for long enough to even pray is really difficult. Maybe just because prayer feels like a spiritual battle sometimes. Prayer can be really hard. But yet, as we're going to look at this morning, the early church were a people who prayed. They prayed when they were on their own and they prayed when they were together. And as they prayed things changed. And so we together want to be a praying people. And this morning I want to think a little bit as we look at the next bit of the Acts story about how it is that we could become that kind of praying people. So just to give you a little quick recap, um, last week Ron looked at this most amazing miracle about how this disabled guy had been disabled since birth, um, suddenly in the power of the Holy Spirit was able to stand, he was able to praise God. And off the back of it, which was the next bit of the story we didn't read, Peter and John are able to stand up in front of a whole crowd of people and speak about who Jesus is. But as they do that, they set up a little pattern which gets repeated throughout the New Testament lots of times, which is as the gospel is proclaimed, as miracles happen, opposition, spiritual and physical opposition comes to the good news of Jesus. And in this case, what happens is Peter and John find themselves hauled up in front of the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, the end of Acts chapter 3 into the beginning of Acts chapter 4. In fact, it's an extremely dangerous situation. Peter and John would have known what was at stake here because they'd witnessed Jesus go through a similar process. And the guys in the Jewish leadership say, you need to stop. You need to stop talking about Jesus. You need to stop with these miracles. It's not helpful. But because Peter and John are so full of the Holy Spirit, they just say, we can't. We cannot stop. We have to keep talking about what we've seen. And the situation is extremely dangerous. It could have, could have been in that moment that they are killed. It could be that they find themselves on crosses. It could be they're just thrown in prison for a whole bunch of time. But miraculously, they're released. And what we're going to do now is we're going to pick up the story, and Jeff's going to read it for us, and the next little bit of the Acts story, which is going to be in Acts chapter 4, 
and it's verses 23 to 31. So as Jeff comes and reads it, if you want to read it off the screen, you can. If you've got it on a phone as normal, you can. Even if you've got one of those old paper things that people had once upon a time, you can even use that if you brought one with you this morning. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported that all the chief priests and the elders had said to them, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Jeff's also one of our core team members, and uh, he and his wife, Linda, head up our prayer ministry here. So thanks, mate, so much for coming to speak. So depending on how you grew up, whether you grew up in a church or not a church, as a Christian or another religion, depending on whether you went to um, a very liturgical church, depending you went to a very free church, depending on whether you are a loud person or a quiet person, depending on so many different things will depend a lot on how you pray. There are so many different models for prayer out in the world. Um, Has anyone ever seen just these two little ones which we sometimes teach our kids? Anyone ever seen the TSP? Have you ever seen that one? No? Literally nobody? Uh, Thank you. Sorry. Please. We use that one in our our kids' groups sometimes. Um, Anyone know this one if you didn't know that one? Acts. Anyone know the Acts one? Yeah, one person. What is it? I'm going to test you. What's the Acts one? No idea. Okay, good. Feel better. Got a lot of work to do on prayer today. Okay, it's up on the screen. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Whatever supplication means, I have literally no idea. There are lots of different models of prayer out there. But today what I want to do is I want to look at a a particular model of prayer, which is quite a new one. And it's a model of prayer which has been devised by a great friend of Vintage's, a guy called Pete Gregg. Um, Pete is uh, the global leader of an organization called 24-7 Prayer. They have prayer rooms all over the world. They've seen incredible things of God happen over the last decades. Pete is a great advocate and friend of ours, an encourager of Vintage Pasadena. And Pete's written this great book. I don't often recommend books, but um, one book has got this title. I will recommend it. How to Pray, A Simple guide for normal people. So that's my level of book. Um, So P in his book talks about a model of prayer, which is this, um, prayer, to pause, to rejoice, to ask, 
and to yield. And uh, that has been hugely helpful in my life to think about that as a model of prayer. And today I'm going to go through that model as we look at today's passage, because what you'll see in a minute is that the model of how the early church prayed had a lot in common with these four little bullet points about how we might pray. And so I want to get straight into that. And I'm not saying this is the only way you can pray. I'm not saying this is the best way to pray but I'm going to show you that this can be a very helpful way about how we balance up and get structure into our lives as prayer. So I'm going to go straight through it really fast today and go straight in. So the very first thing we see, which Jeff just read for us, is that the early church, amidst all the chaos, all the excitement, all the danger that they're in, the first thing they do is they stop and they pray. I don't know about you, but one of the very hardest things about praying is actually stopping for long enough to talk to God. We live in a world, don't we, which is so unbelievably overwhelming. In the physical reality that we live in, we are probably as busy, if not busier, than anyone else who's ever lived on the planet before. Our schedules are full. Our kids have social lives that are vastly more impressive and busy than most A-list celebrities. We have more things to do today than ever before. But on top of the physical reality we live in, we also have to contend with a second reality that's going on all around us all the time which is the virtual reality, the digital reality, that any gaps that we might ever find that we have in a physical space are instantly consumed by screens. Now, be honest, who takes their phone with them to bed? Whose phone is the last thing that they see at night? Whose phone is the first thing they see in the morning? No, actually, I'm not going to ask this question. I won't ask you who takes their phone with them to the restroom. Don't answer. And I definitely won't ask, and I'm going to close my eyes in case someone puts their hands up, who sends messages to people from the toilet? Okay. I won't, I, I won't tell you if I've ever done that to you. Every gap that would have happened in our world is now consumed by what happens in the virtual space. We have two worlds that fill our time. And we find ourselves moving backwards and forwards between the physical and the virtual space. Um, I was talking to an NBC News reporter this week. He's a great friend of ours, and he's going to come and speak in a few weeks' time. And he was telling me when they do training for news reporters, they say the very worst thing that can possibly happen if you're a news reporter is to have what's called dead air. And dead air basically means silence. You cannot have silence. We have to have noise bombarding us all the time in different ways. Um, we're told that in, um, uh, uh, we now have five times more information every day bombarding us than those people did in 1986. We are fueled on dopamine hits. We're fueled on information and noise that comes at us from every angle. But the problem is this, is that when we become Christians, we are invited into a third reality. That our reality that's supposed to shape our lives is not that we are citizens of earth in the physical, not even that we're citizens in the digital or the virtual, but actually that we are citizens of heaven. That all around us, all the time, is a whole other story that's going on. It's a story of God. It's a story of what he's doing in the world. It's a story of a struggle between good and evil. And then when we pray, what we're actually doing is we're praying, God, your kingdom come on earth in the physical as it is in the spiritual. 
that the invitation to us is to stand in the gap between the physical and the spiritual and to pray, God, this is what's going on here, but we need you, spiritual God, to do something right now. God, we want to bring to you the things that are physical so that you can transform them in your spiritual power. Do you see that? But if we are so overwhelmed, as I often am, in between the physical and the virtual, actually there's just no space. There's no space. There's nowhere for God to get a word in edgeways. But instead, what the psalmist tells us in verse 46, be still. Be still and know that I am God. That God has things that he wants to tell us, things that he wants to show us, things that he wants to do in us and through us and with us that we need to hear. That all the busyness in the world doesn't have a patch on what God can do when he speaks one word into being and we enact it and the world changes. But we so often miss it. The first thing the early church did is that they paused and they spent time in God's presence. I wonder when the last time was that you paused and spent time in God's presence. As I've come to realize, the only way to do this is to have a lot of grit and determination to ask for God's help. But I wonder when the last time was that you got up early, like Jesus did. Maybe went for a walk, maybe sat in your favorite chair, opened your Bible and asked God to speak to you. I wonder when the last time was that you went for a walk out one evening in the quiet and in the stillness and asked God to speak. Whatever our pattern is for prayer, we need those moments where we can be fueled, where we can listen, where we can stop for long enough to hear what the God of all creation wants to say into our lives. So first up, the early church paused. The second thing that the early church did is that they rejoiced. Now, in the midst of a very difficult, a very dangerous situation, rejoicing, praising, giving thanks to God doesn't sound like the most logical response that you can give. I think we often think that rejoicing is what happens when something good happens in our life, right? You know, if someone gives us the thing we really want, then we're going to be thankful for it. Um, when I was growing up, um, if my granny, because I grew up in a very posh British family, uh, if my granny sent me some money for Christmas, I knew that I had exactly two weeks to write a little thank you note and put it in the post. Remember the post? To put it in the post and send it to my granny because that was the appropriate response of thankfulness for the good thing that she had done. Something good happens, we're thankful for it. And we do exactly the same with worship. When something good happens in our life, we worship God. Except that, that isn't the model that the early church used at all. The early church had a totally different way. And I wanted to show you some slides because I just tried to draw this out this week to help myself understand it a little bit. So I think sometimes when we think about worship, what we say, hey, is worship is about our response to something good, Kevin. Can I have the next slide, Matt? Is that right? That one. Oh, can you see that? It's not super easy, is it? Okay, so in our lives, something good happens. Maybe you're praying for something. Maybe God gives you some finance. Maybe God gives you some healing. Maybe God gives you an answer to something that you've been asking for. So because something good happens, we're okay. The good things happen. The situation is okay. Therefore, I'm okay. And I am therefore going to praise God. 
Except that in the early church, they prayed the opposite way around from that. So if we can have the next slide. This is how the early church prayed, and we read it in today's passage. The first thing the early church did is that they worshipped God. The first thing the early church do was they worship God. Verse 24 says this, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They started in a place of worship. They recognized that God is good, that God is faithful, that God is in charge, that God is in control of life. And because God is in charge, therefore, they and I and you are okay. If God is powerful, we are okay. And as God is powerful and we are okay, therefore suddenly the situation is turned around and we are able to join in with what God is doing in the world. Do you see the radical difference of those two perspectives? Worship is not supposed to just be God did something good and now for I'm going to worship him. It's supposed to start recognizing that God is in charge of the world. God is sovereign. God is good. And we recognize that and therefore everything else starts to fall into places in our life. The psalmist David, who wrote so many of the psalms, was a guy who saw the highs and the lows. He wrote the psalm that we just quoted for. And the beginning of that psalm, 46, starts like this. God is our refuge and our strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, you see, we will not fear that the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. Worship of who God is and his character comes first and not as a response. And the early church worshipped even when they couldn't see the way through the situation. So we're called to pause were called to rejoice. Well, then the third thing the early church did was that they asked. Now, you might think, hold on a minute. If this is all just about stopping and letting God be God, if it's all about like praising and rejoicing God, rejoicing, maybe we shouldn't even bother in asking God for stuff. Maybe we don't need to do that. But in fact, the early church, it seems, did regularly, collectively, and specifically ask God to do things. Verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus Christ. When I'm praying I think often I'm trying to figure out, should I be asking for stuff and should I not ask for stuff? Actually, the Lord's Prayer, as we looked at two weeks ago, tells us specifically we should be people who ask for stuff. Give us today our daily bread. If you go on that a little bit later in Luke chapter 11, it says, ask and you will receive. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Because God is a good father, because God loves us, because God cares for us, he does ask us to come to him with requests. That's a very good thing to do. But let's just look for a minute about how the early church asked and what they asked for. So first thing is this. Do you notice that the early church prayer is very much including and involving them? Sometimes when I'm praying, what I'm really saying is this. Hey, God, I'm here. There's a problem over there. Can you just go and fix it? Like, I've got some stuff going on in my life. I don't know the answer. So can you just magically, miraculously sort it out for me? 
And in fact, what the early church said is they, they realized that they were going to be the answer to some of their problems. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. The early church realized that the answer to the prayer would probably not be totally removed from their own involvement in the situation. They realized that what they needed was God's power and his presence so that they could go and be part of the solution. Praying is not abstract and removed from our own involvement. So they prayed and realized it was about them, but they also realized that they needed the miraculous. There's a really clear pattern that happens in scripture, which is where we need God to do something, and we ask God for his power and his presence, but we also have to go. So we have to have the miraculous. Jesus, it says, he went through the local area, he healed the sick, he cast out demons, but he also proclaimed the gospel. There's always the physical act of what we have to do, and there's always the spiritual act of what God does. If we miss the miraculous, we're relying on our own strength and our own power, and it doesn't work. But if we, if we, if we only think about God going over and doing something on there, we miss that we might be part of the very solution that God is trying to enact in the world. Are you with me? Good. Excellent. We are people who are invited to pray. Prayer matters, right? Prayer works. James 4 says that, says, James is writing to the church and he says to them, you didn't get what you needed because you didn't pray. God invites us to pray and as we pray together, things change. Um, I want to read you a little thing from Pete's book because this um, just really struck me and I've never actually heard it said in, in this way. Um, this is a story of something that happened um, quite a long time ago now. This is called The, the Miracle of Dunkirk. Um, which was in World War II. So one of the most dramatic examples of the power of united prayer in modern times took place in May 1940, as the Second World War was entering its darkest and most dangerous chapter. The Allied forces were trapped by advancing Nazi forces with their backs to the sea at Dunkirk. The German High Command had announced that its troops were proceeding to annihilate the British forces. Winston Churchill was preparing to admit an unprecedented military catastrophe. The Allied generals were secretly anticipating the loss of a third of a million soldiers. In utter despair, King George VI took to the airwaves on Thursday, May 23rd, 1940, calling the people of Great Britain to a national day of prayer the following Sunday. Old black and white photographs show somber crowds that Sunday waiting to get into cathedrals, churches, and chapels. An entire nation united in seeking God for national deliverance. The very next day, a flotilla of some 860 vessels, mostly civilian craft, set out to cross the English Channel in desperate ramshackle attempt to rescue besieged Allied soldiers. Churchill hoped that as many as 30,000 men, 10% of the army, might be rescued. By the time the ships reached France, they were highly vulnerable to aerial attack. So too was the Allied army amassed like sitting ducks on the beach at Dunkirk. But unseasonal storms blew up, battering the European mainland so violently that the Luftwaffe in that region was grounded, unable to attack. Meanwhile, Hitler had inexplicably ordered his forces to halt. For three days, they did not move. His generals were furious, and military historians to this day are still baffled by this clear tactical error. And so, with the Luftwaffe grounded by an unexpected storm, and the German army restrained by its own commander, the Dunkirk evacuations were allowed to proceed largely undisrupted until the Luftwaffe resumed their aerial attacks on May the 29th. 
On Wednesday, three days after the National Day of Prayer, in sharp contrast to the storms of the previous day, an extraordinary calm descended on the English Channel, precisely the benign conditions that this, down, this overloaded boat now needed as they sailed back to England. By the time that the German army finally renewed their attack, more than 338,000 men had been rescued, ten times the number that had been initially anticipated. No wonder the events of those remarkable days have become known as the miracle of Dunkirk. Isn't that amazing? A whole country stopped to pray, and hundreds of thousands of people's lives were saved. Now, I'm totally in awe of that story because my grandfather was one of the people who was on that beach that day. I would not have existed. I wouldn't be here today if that nation didn't stop and prayed. Prayer makes a huge difference. And God is asking us to intercede. He's asking us to get on our knees and ask him to move in power. So the early church asked for things. And then finally this. The early church yielded in prayer. They yielded. Now maybe the hardest thing, the hardest thing of all the things that we have to face in prayer is to allow God to be in charge and recognize that we're not in charge. We're geared so much, aren't we, all the time to think that what we need is a solution, a goal, a strategy, a tactic, and we need it not like in the future, but we need it now. We need the life hack. We need the Google answer to the problem that we're facing. But what we see in the early church in the way that they prayed is there's a recognition that God had the answers and that God was in charge. The disciples aren't praying a prayer, hey, just give us what we want now, God, and everything will be okay. There's a recognition that God is doing something and that the early church got to join in. I wonder if you've ever had one of these kind of times of prayer or whole periods of prayer. I wonder whether you've ever bashed down the door of heaven with your faith, whether you've prayed for healing, whether you've prayed for salvation, whether you've prayed for something which you're so sure is absolutely in the will of God and that God would be completely um, silly not to respond and not answer that prayer right now, only to find that God doesn't seem to answer that prayer. Ever been in that situation? Yeah, I bet we have. I bet we have. I certainly have. Now, I don't, in the last literally couple of minutes of my talk, want to give you a completely trite answer about how we deal with unanswered prayer. But unanswered prayer is a big deal. Pete deals with it much better than I can. If you are in that situation today, if you are asking for something and you're like, God, I just can't seem to find it. I can't seem to get the answer I'm looking for. Then I really recommend having a good read. But I do just want to pull out a few things from the early church, a few things about sometimes how God answers prayers. I think it might help a little bit as we address this topic. The first thing is this. When we pray, we know that God answers. We know that he hears. We know that he's at work because he tells us so. But God's answer to us can be a number of different things. Sometimes when we pray, God just says yes. Hallelujah. When we pray for healing, sometimes healing comes immediately. When this early church prayed for God's presence to come, bang, immediately God's presence and power and might turn up in the last few verses of what Jeff read for us. Sometimes the answer is yes, straight away. Sometimes, though, the answer is no. 
Sometimes God says no to us, and that can be really hard. Scientists tell us that we can take in to our brains about 120 pieces of information every five to seven seconds. So right now, in this moment, 119 out of the 120 bits of things that my brain can deal with are consumed with trying to work out what the next word is I'm supposed to say in front of you. What that means is that if you are currently in the back row or in the middle row and you're picking your nose, I probably aren't going to see it. It's not that my eyes can't see it, but it just means that my brain can't take that information in. My brain can't cope with what the weather's doing outside or what the kids groups are doing right now or all the other things that are going on around me. That all the time, I can only compute a tiniest proportion of the billions of bits of information that are going on around me. Now, usually, I think I know the answer to the problem. If I see an issue, I think, well, I've got a brain and i figured it out and this is what I want. But sometimes, I have absolutely no idea about the bigger solution that God is doing. Are you with me? That sometimes God is doing stuff that we can't even begin to understand because our brains are infinitely too small to understand the complexity and the enormity of all the things that are going on in the situation around us. You know, I'm beginning to find as a parent that if I want to be a good parent, that sometimes my answer to my children has to be no. Now, they do not like it. They do not like it. If you say to a child no, they will scream and they will cry and they will pretend that you're the worst parent in the world. But when my child comes to me and says, oh, Daddy, it's like two minutes to dinner. Can I have a huge ice cream, please? And you go, uh, no. What you're doing, of course, as a parent, is you're looking at the entirety of the reality of the situation and going, mm, well, if my child eats a huge ice cream right now, probably they'll be violently sick and they won't eat their dinner and it will be a really bad situation. But of course, our kids don't understand that. Our kids think that the answer to every question should be yes immediately. When we pray, sometimes God will say to us no. And it's not because he's mean. It's not because he's unkind. But it's actually because he loves us. It's actually because he cares for us. It's actually because he's doing something much better that we can't compute and we can't see right now. So God says yes. Sometimes God says no. And then maybe this is the hardest one. Sometimes God just says not yet. Sometimes God says not yet. Um, when I was at university, um, I had this beautiful opportunity to travel the world, work in some of the most incredible places, and I arrived at this university in England. And I decided, um, I made a deal with God, basically. It was entirely one-sided, and I did not ask God's opinion. But I basically said, hey, God, here I am. I've arrived at university. I now need a good Christian girlfriend. Here we go. What I'd entirely failed to understand in the situation was that I'd signed up to go to a university which had almost no girls at the whole university. It was one of the few universities in the United Kingdom that is almost entirely male-dominated. Uh, the Christian organizations at the university are some of the only Christian organizations in the whole of Northern Europe, as far as I can tell, which have almost no ladies in them whatsoever. And so I found myself, and it looks kind of comical now, but I found myself for two years angry. You know, I was like, God, you're doing great stuff right now. We're seeing people come to faith. We're getting to go on mission trips. We're doing music and sport and all this stuff's going on. You're giving me great friends. And I am angry. I am cross. I'm cross because you are not giving me the very thing that I have decided that I needed in my life right now, which is a good Christian girlfriend. Where is my good Christian girlfriend? And after two years of being angry, in the end, I ran out of patience. I was like, God, if you're not going to fix this, I am going to fix this for myself. 
And so I went and basically forced myself into a relationship which was not of God. Lovely Christian girl, not a good relationship, didn't end well, lots of damage, lots of pain, lots of hurt. And it was only at the end of that process, after like two or three years of being really angry about it, when I was able to go, okay, God, I give up. I give up. I yield. I recognize that right now you seem to have a different story. And because of that, I promised I'm going to stop trying to fight you on this issue. I promise that I'm going to try. If I never get married, it's okay. If I never have kids, it's actually okay. Even though it's heartbreaking inside to say that, if that never happens to me, I'm going to be okay. Now, what I didn't know was that 200 miles away, a very beautiful young lady was praying exactly the same prayer who I'd never met. A very beautiful young lady who had had exactly the same experience of heartbreak and trauma and not managing to kind of hold a relationship down for different reasons and being let down and hurt was praying exactly the same prayer. And what I've come to realize is in that exact moment, God went, okay, now you're ready. Now you're ready. Because it's not your agenda anymore. Now you're ready to play part of my story. And three months later, I met a very beautiful young lady when I was least expecting it, sitting in my parents' living room. It's the least romantic place on earth right now. With my parents in the room, home for Christmas from university, there was this beautiful young lady called Laura. Because I was realized that God was writing a story. Now, if I'd had my way, I'd have married five girls at university before that moment. God had a different story. Now, that can be really hard, and I'm not making light of the really painful things that we face. And many of us in this room are dealing with unanswered prayer that hurts. It really hurts. But I want to tell you this. God is good. God is alive and God is well. And God is out working plans, in your purposes, plans and purposes in your life. But in order for you to engage with what God wants to do in this church and in your life, number one, you've got to pause. You've got to stop. You've got to wait. You've got to take moments to hear from God. Number two, you've got to rejoice. You've got to start by realizing that we're not the center of attention, but God is. Number three is we've got to take time to ask. We don't get if we don't ask. We've got to ask God for the things we need. And then fourthly, we've got to be able to be in that position where we're prepared to yield. We're prepared to say sorry when we've messed it up. We're prepared to allow God to be God in our lives.